1: Welcome to New Books in Intellectual History. I'm your host today, Carl Nellis, and we are talking with David Matthews, who is Professor of Medieval and Medievalism Studies at the University of Manchester. We're talking about David's book, Medievalism, a Critical History, which was published by Boydell & Brewer in 2015, newly released in paperback in March of 2017. David, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you. Thanks. Pleasure to be on it.
1: Welcome to New Books in Intellectual History. I'm your host today, Carl Nellis, and we are talking with David Matthews, who is Professor of Medieval and Medievalism Studies at the University of Manchester. We're talking about David's book, Medievalism, A Critical History, which was published by Boydell & Brewer in 2015, newly released in paperback in March of 2017. David, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you. Thanks. Pleasure to be on it.
1: This is a really exciting book for those who are interested in tracing what has been variously called medieval afterlives or reception of the medieval. There's a lot going on here. The, The way that you interact with some of the really good work that's been done in the past decade as the field of medievalism studies has come together. Really exciting, really interesting. David, I'm very pleased to have you on. Thank you so much for the time. Let's start with a little bit about what brought you to this field and this study. How did you come to think about and work on medievalism?
0: It was a long time coming for me, this book. Um, Mm. I uh, grew up, I'm, I'm Australian. I grew up in an Australian city Uh, And I became broadly interested at a fairly early age in medieval literature, medieval studies. uh, Mm -hmm. And you could still then, uh, when you got to university, when I was an undergraduate, you could still study in considerable detail uh, medieval literature, which I did. Mm -hmm. But I was also surrounded by things that were to me... Um, slightly strange objects. I mean, you know, obviously enough, you're in Australia, you have no real direct contact with medieval artefacts. But what you do have, and particularly in the city where I grew up, is a lot of uh, neo-Gothic architecture, uh, a lot of neo-Gothic churches, but uh, also the, the buildings of the university where I studied, the University of Adelaide, had these sort of grand neo-gothic buildings it was also a city which strangely enough um was a, a very important place for uh work produced by the the company morris marshall faulkner and co and that's the company that william morris co-founded to make okay. textiles and furniture and stained mm-hmm. glass and so on um and the, uh, there's a there's a lot of that sort of material in in Birmingham and, and London, which is not so surprising, but also mm-hmm. in in Adelaide because there were particular families that that bought it. So I, I grew up surrounded by these this sort of Middle Ages at a remove, um, mm-hmm. or at least one remove, perhaps a couple of removes. This strange sort of culture that uh, came from elsewhere, and. I ended up writing an undergraduate dissertation on William Morris and getting interested in his um, late prose works at the same time as I was working on 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 medieval actual medieval literature. Uh, That's all now quite a long time ago, uh, and I went into a a career in you know fairly conventionally in um, medieval literature. But something about that context of how the Middle Ages came back into prominence in the nineteenth century and how it was uh, uh, reinvented and seized upon by uh, very diverse people, conservative thinkers and radical thinkers, and so on something about that never never let me go and um, of course as as you pointed out in your introduction we 've seen in the past twenty five years or so. Um, various scholars getting interested in um, what has come to be called medievalism studies. Um, the journal Studies in Medievalism was founded in 1979. And I found some of the work that uh, I was doing in the early 90s was of interest to uh, people that studies in medievalism. And this, I have to say, is before I knew that what I was doing was called medievalism.
1: <laughs> right.
0: but, um, yeah, my, my first book was um, an investigation into how the study of Middle English came about in modernity from the late 18th century onwards. And I didn't really think of that in the framework of, of medievalism. But the, the editors of studies in medievalism did, and they solicited right. a, an article from me and, um, you know, to some extent, the book we're talking about now really was a case of my acknowledging, well, everybody else thinks this is what I'm doing, so I'm going to actually set out and, and do it. I'm going to write a book with medievalism in the title and just do it. Right.
1: And, and uh how long ago was that that you launched the project
0: yeah it's in in one sense as i say it just is a long time coming i just mm-hmm. you know I, I for years and years i've been just making notes about you know this or that medieval medievalist film that i might have seen or mm-hmm. or um a museum that i might have gone to you know i i i went to the cloisters museum in new york um some years ago and i would just find myself making notes about the ways in which the medieval is represented in, in 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 various cultures. So, so in that sense, really many years. But I do remember uh, that it was in 2009 that uh, a few things came together, and I, I made the decision almost in one morning to, to write this book. And what really got it going was that um, I uh, was looking at the Oxford English Dictionary, uh, which for a very long time credited hmm. the word itself, the word medievalism to John Ruskin. This had always been hmm. accepted that Ruskin coined this word in a lecture in 1853. Hmm. And for, for, for reasons I no longer remember, I wanted to recheck this in the dictionary and I found that they'd redated it. It was slightly earlier. And it wasn't Ruskin, uh, and the word was in use in a, a, a journal, an American journal, in fact. Mm-hmm. And I looked at it, and I thought, something about it didn't, didn't sound right. I, I, I thought, I'm just not at all sure that this word would first have been used outside of a British context. And by sheer coincidence, a big new periodicals database had gone online um, and uh, my university had access to it. And I did a few minutes' work just fishing around in the first half of the 19th century and looking at this word medievalism. And to my amazement, about 20 minutes later, I'd redated the word medievalism several times
1: <laughs> right, right,
0: <laughs> and pushed it back. A few years each time. And I was uh, so um, taken with, with this that I then looked at the word medieval, which seemed to, which appeared to be first in use in 1827, which was a surprise to me. I, I found that quite late. And I had another, I had a go at redating that. And Mm -hmm. once again, within a short while, I'd redated it by, by about a decade. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I was um, in, in one sense, you know, amazed by this, but in another, it's not surprising. I mean the editors of the OED didn't have the massive digital resources that that we now have mm-hmm. um, so from there, I, I wrote an article about this. I wrote an article about what we could conclude about these redatings. I mean in the end, whether the word medievalism" was used in the 1850s or the 1840s for the first time is perhaps not. The most interesting thing <laughs> you know but it was interesting to discover for example that when the, the word medieval which we can use today in such a pejorative way we can mm-hmm. we can use it in a very negative way as you know and we can talk about regimes we don't like political regimes we don't like as medieval for example i realized that when it was first used that was not the case and indeed there was a concerted effort to to keep this word uh, a kind of scholarly and objective word and to get away from the connotations of another word that was very prevalent at the time, and that word was Gothic. Um, and in the early 19th century and before then, if you wanted to talk about the medieval period – You did not have the word medieval, and people used various words. Gothic or or feudal was another. These words all had negative connotations. I mean, they had other connotations as well, but they could be used negatively. Mm -hmm. Uh, So to to me, it was of interest just to see the sort of semantic history and to see that within a couple of decades, say, of the – The first use of this word medieval, it was once again being used in a negative sense. Um, and I realized there's something very powerful about the idea of the middle ages itself, which meant that it it didn't matter what new adjective you, you tried to come up with to, uh, in a sense, uh, purify the, the semantic field. That didn't, didn't matter. People's ideas about the middle ages were too strong. And uh, those ideas would sooner or later overtake whatever words you had coined to describe it.
1: From that point where you're addressing kind of what really got you thinking and writing about this in terms of uh, the conceptual history, Yes, you come to the point where you've written a book that provides a guide to the field of medievalism studies that sketches out the history of medievalism and that offers a critique. You say this in the preface, you're offering a critique of the practices that have grown up around the study of medievalism, uh, though you're doing so sympathetically and with the aim of furthering future study. So what was it like when you were thinking about this work coming together and building on that kind of conceptual history that you've just uh, traced for us a little bit, some of those starting moves. How did you go about thinking about publishing the research that you were pulling together?
0: Yes, well, the the first thing was, as a result of what I've just described a moment ago, I thought, well, I shall write an article about the semantic history, which I did, and and, um, duly published that. And it was just uh, good luck that um, one of the general editors of what was then a very new uh, series at Boydell and Brewer, the medievalism series, contacted me. It was Chris Jones, whom I, I knew slightly, and he asked. He told me about his new series and said, have you got something you might be interested to contribute? And that was, again, just lucky that it was just right at the time I was thinking about this sort of stuff. And that, that
1: mm-hmm.
0: sparked the idea that perhaps I could build this article up into, into a book. But my first... Mm. Thought was uh, to try to account for medievalism as a phenomenon in a, a linear and chronological way, uh, to write straightforwardly a, a history of it. Uh, this was Not a a really very interesting way of thinking. And indeed, uh, quite a few years ago, um, the the late Leslie Workman, who was the uh, editor, founder and editor of studies in medievalism, did a great deal of work in this field. He had had the idea of a a large uh, collaborative history of of medievalism. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he that he became ill and that didn't really get off the ground. But I quickly realized that it's just not something that one person can do. That medievalism is when you begin to look into it, everybody I think is aware that in the 19th century, there's this great turn to romantic medievalism, but it's not just the 19th century. And uh, when you begin to look back through history and when you look um, across Uh, genres and fields there's just an enormous amount um, of medievalism it waxes and wanes in architecture art music literature politics it's just not something that that one person can encompass nor would it necessarily be a very appealing book you know a vast (laughs) compendium yeah so the breakthrough for me was was when i realized i could abandon that impulse to 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 be comprehensive and instead um try to break a book up into some representative sort of modes as i thought of mm-hmm. them of medievalism so two two of the 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 really important strands of medievalism and i i uh, i claim no Great originality in this, but I, I, Mm -hmm. you know, have identified what I call a romantic medievalism, and on the other hand, grotesque medievalism. Um, Anybody looking at medievalism has to realize quite quickly that on the one hand, there is this uh, very, very uh, positive vision of the Middle Ages. You certainly see that running through the nineteenth century—a vision of the Middle Ages as a kinder, a gentler time before uh, cash dominated people's relationships before capitalism um, slightly more primitive but happier time but on the other hand we have this sense of the middle ages as barbaric and as uh, in every way uncivilized right these are obviously very starkly opposed ideas of the middle ages and they coexist somehow quite comfortably in our our discourse about the Middle Ages today. So I I called these two strands romantic and grotesque medievalism, and that helped me to uh, separate out a couple of different ways of thinking about medievalism. But then I, thankfully, uh, for everyone, I think, who who, uh, gets to read this book, I gave up the linear model, the chronological (laughs) model, (laughs) And instead, um, as uh, you know from looking at the book, I've got three sections. Uh, one of mm-hmm. which is uh, the first of which is simply the section taxonomies, which is just a way of thinking about the different terminologies that have been applied, that might be applied, different kinds mm-hmm. of medievalism. Um, and then my my second section, time, space, self, society, in which I explore medievalism in relation to those, into you know, in relation to really big. Concepts And and finally, a, a section entitled History and Discipline, and that section is more for people thinking about academic medievalism and mm-hmm. uh, how we might go about defining a field of medievalism studies, where it's going to, to go, what its future is, and, and most crucially, what its relation to more traditional medieval studies is.
1: As you were discussing grotesque medievalism and the romantic medievalism or the medievalism mm. of, uh, you know, of plague and torture and some of those concepts that have accreted around that idea. You also introduced the idea in addition to a gothic or a grotesque medievalism, in addition to a chivalric or romantic medievalism, a civic medievalism. And where the other two were, were evident from the conversations I've had both in the academy mm. and um, more generally, this was a new idea to me that I found really powerful. Can you talk a little bit about how civic medievalism also became an analytical tool for your work? It's uh, whenever you uh, come up
0: with a a large binary like romantic and and grotesque, uh, initially there's a tendency to feel pleased with yourself that you've broken something down into large concepts And (laughs) and then, of course, you start seeing the exceptions. You start seeing things that don't necessarily quite fit. Um, One of the really uh, defining events where medievalism is concerned for the uh, 19th century was an event called the Eglinton Tournament in 1839, where uh, a group of um, uh, young aristocrats, chiefly pretty conservative aristocrats, um, put on a mock tournament, which – involved them in having uh, armor made and training their horses and uh, uh, having weaponry made suitable for the 14th, 15th century. And this event, among other things, has been credited as the uh, origin of um, present-day reenactment. You know, today, of course, there's a lot of reenactment societies and many of them acknowledge the role of the Eglinton tournament. So Mm. um, I, I sometimes think of Romantic medievalism as this Eglintonian medievalism. Um, It's another way of of talking about it. And and even in the period, it was uh, derided by uh, many people as the the really the airy-fairy version of the Middle Ages, the the overly romantic, impossibly dreamy sort of Middle Ages. The the, the civic medievalism is a more hard-headed adoption of medievalism by people who wouldn't necessarily have had anything to do with something like the Eglinton tournament who who wouldn't have been interested in that, but who at the same time didn't simply write off the Middle Ages as this time of darkness and superstition and barbarism and what I'm, what I was thinking of here, where I'm sitting now in the University of Manchester, I'm about a mile away from a, a truly magnificent um, town hall, Manchester Town Hall, built by uh, mm. an architect named Alfred Waterhouse in the 1870s. In fact, he also built some of the university buildings um, that are, that are closer to hand. It became clear to me, I I, I see this town hall most days of my life, and and clearly it's a a great statement of how magnificent neo-Gothic architecture could be. But equally clearly, it was not built by the kind of people who were very invested in in conservative um, aristocratic fantasies of, of order. It was built by the people who developed a modern industrial metropolis, uh, mm-hmm. I had to start thinking about a a different category, which I called civic medievalism, which sits somewhere between romantic and grotesque medievalism, but a bit closer to the romantic medievalism, I think. A more sort of practical version of medievalism in which, uh, say, the city fathers of, of Manchester did not want to look to aristocratic fantasies didn't look to a barbaric middle ages but they were interested in something like the old trade relationships of the late middle ages the uh, the guilds the uh, that part of the middle ages which actually espoused and encouraged uh, trade and and labor uh, and industry um since i wrote that book um i've become this is the the area that i'm probably most interested in, Hmm. Uh, and I've been exploring um, what I called then civic medievalism, but I'm also now thinking about uh, a kind of industrial medievalism. It's very common uh, in this part of the world to find uh, railway tunnels or uh, Victorian Hmm. reservoirs, dams, which are are constructed in extravagant neo-Gothic styles. And that really sets you thinking, um, what is it about the Middle Ages that appealed so much to these, the people who built things like reservoirs and railways, um, mm-hmm. particularly in places where few people were ever going to see them? Why, why right. build such things like castles or give them this elaborate architecture that few people were ever going to see? So that, that's where uh, my, my current work has developed on from the idea of civic medievalism.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think really helpfully in the book, you uh, set up the ways in which across the binary of the grotesque and romantic, that these ideas are paired, their boundaries are fuzzy, they sometimes collapse into each other. There are points of contact where a community maybe who's engaging with ideas of the medieval will slip back and forth between them, or a story that is using ideas of the medieval uh, will move through uh, beats or moments of, of employing the the Gothic medieval, employing the chivalric medieval uh, over the course of a work or over the course of time as a community develops and uses these ideas. So I really appreciated that about your analysis. You're not drawing rigid binaries here, but you're, you're employing these analytical terms to help us understand and place certain acts and moments in an intellectual history that helps us to make sense, as you're saying, of who's making these choices and why and what's interesting them in bringing back a certain kind of Middle Ages in a certain moment really powerful in your argument. The other thing uh, you set out right in the preface, so maybe this is a good point to talk about it a little bit, is the way you establish uh, the importance of the 1840s for medievalism. Can you talk a little bit about what the 1840s uh, does in your argument and why it's important to employ that analysis of the 1840s to study medievalism as a whole?
0: Just briefly on on your your first point, I think that is it is very important to say that these these kinds of medievalism are not mutually exclusive, that a grotesque medievalism, mm-hmm. or whatever you want to call it, does not necessarily exclude the romantic kind. And one of the examples I used of this is Walter Scott's novel, Ivanhoe. Walter Scott is, of course, very, very often thought of as uh, perhaps the key figure in early uh, 19th century medievalism, the the person who uh, really uh, brings back a taste for the medieval. Without his novel Ivanhoe, there perhaps wouldn't have been an Eglinton tournament. But in Ivanhoe itself, you find a, an ambivalent attitude, conflicted attitude to the Middle Ages. It's um, much as you say, Scott is not an unequivocal admirer of the Middle Ages. He doesn't want us all to be medieval, so to speak. He has lots and lots of reservations uh, about it. So far as the uh, your point about the 1840s goes, I, I uh, one of the things I wanted to do in thinking about medievalism for this book was to have some regard for the fact that uh, the 19th century is a really multifarious time. It's uh, an era of change driven by technology and industry. Uh, we we think we uh, perhaps have a, a, a monopoly on on change, but uh, arguably the nineteenth the century is m- much more dramatic in terms of the change it experiences. And I did not want to suggest that medievalism was a more dominant mode of uh, of thinking. Uh, or indeed behaviour than, than it really was. I think it was very, mm-hmm. very important, mm-hmm. a, a really strong uh strand that runs through 19th century British literature. You also find it in American writing, um in French and German writing. But then if you think about, say, in the context of British writing, of course, what ends up dominating by the end of the century is the realist novel. Uh, however much people read, and they did read something like um, Tennyson's Arthurian epic, uh, medievalism does not really emerge as a dominant strand in, uh, in in literary fiction in Britain in the 19th century. And I, I, I wanted to be careful about distorting the picture. And the, the more I read, the mm. more I looked at, it seemed to me that um, – as you suggested a moment ago, that something really uh, intense went on during the the 1840s or for a yeah. year or two, uh, either side of the, the 1840s. Um, I'm just uh, looking at the, the my own uh, timeline that I constructed. I've already mentioned the Eglinton Tournament of 1839, which is, of course, right mm-hmm. at the beginning of the reign of, of Victoria. Um, I discovered, I mentioned this a little, a little earlier, that the, the word medievalism itself is coined in about 1844. It starts being used. I mean, nobody is aware of having coined it. It starts being used in that time. And it's used in a context. One of the important things that's going on in Britain in the 1840s is that the, uh, Catholic emancipation has happened a few years earlier. And there's the uh, uh, beginnings of what was called the the Oxford Movement, uh, the most famous figure uh, in in which is uh, Cardinal Newman, who converts from Anglicanism to Catholicism in 1845. And this this is a really – it's a a major and uh, shocking event in religious circles um, in that period – It's also the period when a figure that uh, we haven't mentioned yet, uh, Augustus Pugin, is um, publishing his important uh, early work uh, about architecture. And he is responsible for a work called The True Principles of Christian or Pointed Architecture. He had earlier written a work called Contrasts, and the, the drift of these works was to privilege late medieval Gothic architecture. And one of the uh, consequences of his published work was that he became involved in the redesign of Westminster Palace, which uh, burnt down in 1834. Um, This was the home of the uh, British Parliament. And of course, famously, the the building that we see there today, this uh, massive celebrated neo-Gothic structure was commenced to replace what had been burnt. In the 1830s. And the, the key decision that was made, it could have been, in theory, it could have been a neoclassical building, it could have been an Italian building, it could have been anything. But the decision was made that it ought to be uh, a neo Gothic building. So, um, and this rippled outwards uh, uh, in many uh, building programs around the country, many lesser building programs. If people felt their parish church needed renovating, Usually what happened at this point was that um, a a neo-Gothic church was built or a neo-Gothic renovation of the the medieval original took place. So in other words, it's not just metropolitan literature. It's not just um, writing that's circulating among a small elite that is uh, re-presenting the medieval to people. It's actually something going on around obscure parishes all around the country as hundreds and hundreds of churches are rebuilt or sometimes just knocked over so that um, so that they can be built afresh in a mm-hmm. newly medieval style. So I felt that uh, this was really uh, some, something that marked the 1840s in particular and in Britain, though not exclusively in Britain. But it also seemed to me that the... 1840s represented a high watermark of this kind of interest in the medieval mm. uh, and that it did fall away to um, a considerable extent thereafter. Uh, Another um, instance of medievalism in that decade is the establishment of the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood in 1848. And they're very influential. They have a lot of influence on um, painting in in particular, and literature to some extent. But of course, the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood didn't really last very long as a brotherhood. Really, the medievalist impulse is mostly seen in the work of uh, Dante Gabriel Rossetti, uh, the other Pre-Raphaelites mostly go off, you know, into into doing other things. So,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, what I wanted to try to trace was uh, what happens next. And medievalism remains important. You see plenty of medievalist literature after about 1850, and medievalist uh, architecture for sure. But I felt that. It it also ebbed to to a large extent.
1: Two things that I think worth saying. One, quickly, that the the timeline you've mentioned is included as an uh, as an appendix in the book. So you've created this timeline of medievalism, and that's yeah. that's there for readers of the book to to take a look at. The other thing that uh, that you make use of as you're moving through your argument is you mention it briefly and then continue to use it. Raymond Williams' ideas about dominant versus residual uh, culture. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the use, the kind of the mileage you got out of those ideas? When you wanted to discuss uh, how important or primary medievalism was in a particular moment,
0: yes, I, I found uh, Raymond Williams's um, old idea of uh, the residual versus dominant useful because uh, there are plenty of cultural artefacts I- in which medievalism is evident, but it's clearly not dominant or clearly not the most important thing about it. Um, probably uh, a useful area in which to think about this is in what happens in literature in particular after the Victorian period. The, the conventional idea that we've inherited is that high modernism with uh, T.S. Eliot and Virginia Woolf and so on really turns its back on and, and despises Victorianism in, in all kinds of ways, and particularly the Victorian, Victorian fantasy, Victorian medievalism. And you know, there, there is a conventional idea that as a consequence, high modernism is not particularly interested in if, and indeed outrightly hostile to medievalism. But as a lot of investigation, uh, not necessarily my own, uh, many, many scholars have shown in recent years that, of course, the high modernists are in many ways very invested in medievalism. Virginia Woolf is deeply, deeply interested in Chaucer, for example. Mm mm-hmm writes a yep. lot about Chaucer. Yep. Uh, there's a lot of work on uh, James Joyce's medievalism uh, in, in recent years. And the example uh, that I've used in, in my book is something like T.S. Eliot's The Waste Land, which you, you can't really think about without thinking about medievalism. Um, he was a very Influenced, as is well known, by uh, the work of um, a a, a very learned, an amateur medievalist, but a very learned one called Jesse L. Weston, who who wrote a lot about um, the Grail quest and the Grail symbolism. But as soon as you say that Eliot was invested in medievalism and uh, you're talking about the Wasteland, you have to qualify that because the Wasteland has so many other influences going on in it. You know, Eliot is so caught up with um, classical mythology uh with uh the bible and uh, and other influences. So medievalism is is perhaps residual uh in uh Eliot's modernism, but it's certainly there. It's not something that uh Eliot has uh, turned his back on. And so once again for me it was uh, using this sort of notion of residual versus dominant was a way of of trying to be more um Honest about uh, the cultural history of medievalism, trying to avoid uh, exaggerating its importance at the same time as uh, trying to bring it forward where previously it had been um, perhaps under-recognized. (laughs)
1: <laughs> my, one of my favorite phrases you used to express that was when you noted that medievalism remains nested within modernism. It's not eliminated, but I just thought that image of, you know, something small nested within something mm. larger mm. that's pulling in all the pieces of mm. the past and, you know, the anxieties about structure and order and uh, the way that medievalism, you know, maintains a place in that intellectual moment. Uh, I thought that was beautifully expressed as nested within uh moving on from there you end that chapter by by saying that the the, the most helpful analytic in your mind is to address medievalism as a discourse
0: Yes, uh yeah, sure. I I you I'm still um dealing with the the image of medievalism as 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 nested. I'm kind of thinking of <laughs> you, you make it uh, well, I, I, it, it's my phrase, I guess. It's like the yeah. the alien inside the body of uh, modernism <laughs> right. threatening to burst out of its chest. Yeah, medievalism as a discourse for me um this is a, a another aspect I suppose of uh medievalism as sometimes dominant, sometimes uh, residual, and of course, to use the other Raymond Williams term, Mm -hmm. sometimes emergent, um, I uh, regarded it as something which um, threads its way through a range of of different cultural forms. So when you contemplate, say, a neo-Gothic building like the Houses of Parliament at Westminster or... Just a plain parish church that was built in the 1840s. You're looking at something that, that seems to, in every possible way, or, or as many ways as possible, to invoke the medieval, to, uh, to be indistinguishable from, so to speak, the the real thing. And that's what you often see with a, a mid Victorian parish church. But much more often, medievalism is invoked as a kind of uh, idiom or a discourse, something which inflects some other kind of form or, or genre. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, a scholar whose work I, I admire a lot, John Gannum, is someone who has uh, brought this out, for example, in uh, modernist and postmodernist architecture. He's discussed the ways in which skyscrapers uh, in the U.S. very often, while they appear to be the the, the last word in architectural modernism or postmodernism, will very mm. very often reveal some medievalist touch, some kind of version of a turret or a crenellation. Um, mm. That kind of um, medievalist uh, idiom creeping in or being deliberately introduced into a form that, on the face of it, is is doing something completely different. So, yeah, discursively, medievalism threads its way through a lot of cultural forms that, um, on the face of it, have nothing to do with the Middle Ages, or or even, you know, want to turn their backs on the Middle Ages.
1: Mm-hmm. And at that point, your argument turns toward, as you said earlier, that second part of the book where you address uh, medievalism in and as time space, self, and society. You do there address the Oxford movement and the church and the origins of medievalism. But you also then talk about uh, and this I thought was fascinating and I, th- I guess comes from, from your background and kind of the way that your analysis is framed by Fabian's idea of the denial of coevalness as a, as a really powerful way of understanding why people would turn to the medieval in analyses of global relations. Can you talk about how your argument moves into that and takes that as a really helpful tool for understanding why we would engage in medievalism?
0: Yeah, well, in, in in the first place, um, I uh, realized, as I was trying to describe earlier, that in order to discuss all of this in the, in the space of one relatively compact book, I needed to deal with some very big concepts, hence time, space, self, society. The use of uh, Johannes Fabian's material about the denial of coevalness arose, particularly because one day, and before I'd thought about writing the book, I, I was... Uh, Reading in uh, the newspaper that I I get most days, uh, the Guardian newspaper, I was reading about an aid project that the paper itself was engaging in, in an area of Uganda, uh, an area called Katine. And I was struck by and and really amazed by um, the way in which uh, this was framed because the headline which uh, led off said something like, um, the, uh, the the journey from the 21st century to the 14th century uh, takes just 14 hours, and the idea was that uh, you step on a plane mm-hmm. in London, and just 14 or so hours later, you're 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 in the 14th century, where where plague and and famine prevail. And I I thought that was uh. Obviously, this aid project uh, came only from the best of intentions, and what the paper wanted to do was to trace what could be done over the course of a year. But I thought it was uh, extraordinary to make this comparison with the Middle Ages, to in effect say that the the people living in this area in Uganda were medieval. I thought it was extraordinary because that term, that the, the idea of labeling people as medieval just comes with so much freight, so much mm-hmm. baggage. Mm-hmm. I mean – What we're used to today, of course, is the labeling of various terror groups as medieval. You know, we're used to hearing about uh, Islamic State as supposedly medieval. I don't think that's a very useful way of uh, labeling them, but we do hear it a lot. And it seemed to me extraordinary that the people of Uganda would be uh, labeled in this fashion. And I did notice that this didn't persist in later writings about the um, the project that the medieval comparison didn't persist and this is an instance of what uh, as you've mentioned the uh, anthropologist Johannes Fabian calls the denial of coevalness it's uh, to to say that some other people are over there are living in a, a different time is to deny to them, coevalness uh, with us—they are uh, simply not in the same present that that we are in—and and that can lead to all kinds of um, pernicious ways of thinking, even if that's not what was uh, originally intended. And thinking in a much, much larger sense about this, when I'd begun the book, I realised that this this apparently paradoxical notion of people living not just in different spaces but at different times from one another was actually pretty common throughout history and often closely associated with medievalism and the prime example of this is England after the reformation or England in the uh, after say the, the 1530s under mm-hmm. the conditions of reform where people really do look across the channel to countries that have remained Catholic, like Spain, and they see such places not just as culturally different and culturally threatening, but as literally existing in a different time. And that struck me as a very powerful thing, a powerful thing actually to think, to be in a, a situation where you would regard another culture as being not just in a different place from you, but in some other phase of history. And I think that in a very real way, um, people under conditions of reform in England actually feared not just invasion, but they they feared that – and they feared invasion with good reason, of course, at times. They feared that an earlier time would come back, that the Middle Ages would come back. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that kind of uh, what results from that is this denial of coevalness, which is a a, a very, it's a peculiar but very powerful kind of phenomenon. Mm -hmm.
1: The other really powerful uh, scholarly work that you draw on in this chapter is Carolyn Dinshaw's work uh, on time. Can you talk a little bit about how you pulled in her ideas about the queerness of time in engaging uh, Fabian's work and some of what you've just been talking about?
0: Yes, well, Carolyn Dinshaw... Who's at uh, New York University is a really, really important uh, figure uh, in medievalism, and you know someone who's uh, whose work has been really influential on my own. Her book, uh, her, her last book, "How Soon Is Now," is about kind of queer politics of, of time. She goes even more deeply into um, the kinds of things that I've. Uh, just been talking about to well to talk about what what she calls queer models of time that is models of time that simply refuse to stay linear in an easy sort of way the book opens very evocatively when she records going to what was billed as a sort of medieval fair, a medieval event. Um, If I remember rightly, I think this was in the vicinity of the the Cloisters Museum. And when she arrived there, just out of uh, curiosity, she just wanted to see it out of curiosity, she observed a a young man who was uh, playing a flute or or recorder and who, um, in the, the spirit of the medievalism, uh, of the event had dressed yeah. up, but he hadn 't dressed up very much he 'd actually just really put a dressing gown on, so he 's out in the in the park among all these people, wearing a dressing gown and playing some medieval music um, on a on a flute and that 's a kind of <laughs> very basic sort of instance of getting into the spirit of playing the medieval, being medieval mm-hmm. or in invoking mm-hmm. medieval time and she um, takes off from that. To talk about um, models of time in which either time itself refuses to as it were stay linear or people more particularly refuse to let it be linear mm-hmm. um, she 's interested in narratives which which fold time or at least attempt to fold time, which attempt to sort of reach out and touch alternative times. What I was talking about before with the denial of coevalness and Obviously, with the example of Reformation England, looking at, um, say, Spain or France, that that's really all about fear mm-hmm. and you know, very much about um, not wanting that time to come back, being fearful of that past time. Of course, there are. Um, closet Catholics at the same time in England who desperately mm-hmm. wish for the return of that time. What right. Carolyn Dinshaw is interested in is, is a positive model of this queer time in, in mm-hmm. being able to, um, draw productively on elements of the past to, to reach out. And as she puts it, almost, you know, be able to touch that past. She has a kind of utopian, it's almost a utopian vision, I think, of, of, uh, how time might work. It's not even necessarily one which I I share, but her work is always immensely um, provocative Mm
1: -hmm. uh,
0: and immensely fruitful uh, in that regard.
1: The way you used it allowed you to bring in the idea of nostalgia to good effect in the writing. The next chapter is kind of about space and you talk about tourism. Uh, You address ideas of authenticity and especially touristic capital. You go to Oxford, you go to southern French villages, you talk about Crusade and the Cathars and... Uh, Tintagel, you talk about St. Mary's Cathedral in Sydney and that kind of colonial space and what it means to build a medieval cathedral there. Really interesting. There's so much more in the book that we can't cover, but I would love to hear you talk a little bit about, especially for our intellectual history listeners, what you do with chapter four as you start with Grossman, and then you go from there to talking about Kenelm Henry Digby's work and then William Morris's work, uh, and then come to the present with Headley Bull and some of the way that neo-medievalism is being used as a tool for understanding uh, contemporary political economy. Could you kind of walk us through what you're doing in that chapter on the way that different people imagine medieval selves and potential for being medieval in the present, from Digby to Morris to Hedley Bull?
0: Yes. As I was writing, of course, uh, I was always aware that one of the the big phenomena of current medievalism is to do with reenactment. Mm-hmm. And the Society for Creative Anachronism, I think, is well known to, to many people. It has thousands of members worldwide, and um, many uh, of these members are interested in um, reenacting versions of medieval history. They adopt uh, medieval personae. It's mm-hmm. not exclusively a medievalist society, but it, it, it has very much a medi- medievalist impulse. I'm not a, a reenactor. Um, I don't really know. Uh, much about that area, or I didn't when I I started with this. But I was very curious about it, and I knew that I had to think more deeply about it. So the chapter that you're talking about almost ends with the the SCA and the idea of reenactment, uh, but it starts much earlier than that because I wanted to think about what it is that makes people interested in taking on medieval personae. W- why might someone want to recreate a, a second self that is a sort of medieval self or even in some cases to uh, make that, that second self the, the primary self? This is not something that I felt I fully understood. And I began in uh, perhaps a slightly odd place, which is uh, a novel that was very famous in its time. It was published in France in 1898 uh, by J.K. Huismans. It's called La Cathedrale, The Cathedral. Uh, And it's about a man. It's essentially a plotless novel that consists of Hmm. A man and his mentor wandering round the cathedral of Chartres <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. uh, engaging in a, 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 a you know, series of pretty long meditations about the architecture and the, the, the spirit of the, the Middle Ages, while this uh, this character, uh, his name is Durtal, while he thinks about whether he should more fully adopt what is in effect a a medieval persona, whether he should in fact enter holy orders or become a monk and, um, Mm -hmm. you know, act as a medieval person. So I I thought that was um, uh, an interesting place to to start. Ken Elm Henry Digby published a a work called The Broadstone of Honour, which was first published in 1822, but he kept on revising it and expanding it. He uh, converted to Catholicism, and essentially what this book did was to instruct people in how to use chivalry Mm -hmm. uh, as a code of behavior. I say say instruct people. Of course, it was pretty
1: masculine uh,
0: (laughs) audience that was in mind. Digby had the pretty strange idea that if you read a lot of medieval romances, You could simply use these as guides for for conduct in uh, the Victorian present. It sounds, I think, fairly mad. Um, (laughs) And uh, in many ways, it was a a pretty eccentric undertaking. But on the other hand, I've talked a lot about uh, Victorian Britain and a, a, a changeful Time as driven by industry and technology in forms people had never seen before, and one response is to turn back to the past, uh, to a, a nostalgic appreciation of things that perhaps looked a bit more stable and mm-hmm. comforting in that changeful present. I don't think many people really uh, adopted Digby's ideas from the uh, the Broadstone of Honor, but. Mm-hmm. In a broader sense, the notion of chivalry was very pervasive in 19th century Britain, certainly in uh, the US in the 19th century. Um, mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. Uh, notion of uh, chivalry in the Old South, for example, uh, we don't really have time to go into that. But uh, it's, it's lurking there behind the, um, the American Civil War. Um, so chivalry uh, as a code of practice as a way of being and a specifically medieval way of being becomes pretty pervasive uh, in various forms uh, in 19th century Britain, as I say, but uh, beyond. And it has various um, interesting outcomes. Uh, Digby is a pretty conservative commentator on Mm -hmm. Social practice and on behavior, but um, there is a strand of radical socialist thinking later in the century, for example, most celebratedly perhaps through William Morris, which advocates not turning back the clock exactly on industry but returning industry to a more sort of medieval sense of how it might work in a in a gentler kind of fashion um returning to a sense of craft privileging the notion of mm. craft over profit but there are still other outcomes of this kind of thinking that is the the kind of thinking that says we can take on medieval persona and one of the most eccentric uh, is uh, another work you mentioned um by a man named Ralph Adams Cram mm-hmm. uh he's pretty well known in your country i think as being behind some of the important neo gothic um buildings um, in cathedrals mm-hmm. in yes yep. in architecture yep. uh he um was uh, closely involved in the design of St John the Divine um, the cathedral mm-hmm. neo gothic cathedral in in New York but um He wrote a book called Walled Towns uh, a little later in his life, which is an extraordinary kind of dystopian vision
1: of Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) uh, a kind of a a new dark ages. Um, He's writing uh, immediately after the First World War. And uh, he expounds a a, a kind of macro historical thesis about uh, what happens when empires lose their power. And he suggests in 1919 that the world is facing a new dark ages and is threatened by new hordes of Huns and Vandals. Uh, So It's a very grim Mm
1: -hmm.
0: kind of way of looking at what might happen in the world. And, his response to that is that what we need to do is, uh, given that the curve of civilization is on a downward trend, we, we need to sort of retreat into these uh, places of, of safety, walled towns, creating little kind of oases in this troubled world, um, oases of, of culture and the the intellect and it's a specifically kind of medievalist vision. It even mm-hmm. sounds a bit like uh, the way the world of Game of Thrones looks. I think um, right. back there in 1919. So this was not in any way adopted. It did not come to pass. But uh, it's interesting how and this is something that a scholar uh, named Bruce Holsinger has, has written a lot yes, about. It's yes. uh, yeah a very influential book in international relations. Called the Anarchical Society by a man named Hedley Bull is another book which, which very seriously takes on the idea that uh, in a sort of post-national phase of, of at least Western culture, as traditional ideas of the nation state begin to be challenged, Perhaps what we are witnessing is a a world in which a more fragmented medieval way of viewing states and groups of polities is is Mm -hmm. appropriate. So Hedley Bull advanced this idea that the kind of world of early feudalism is uh, uh, one model for how we might consider what is happening in the world. This book was uh, written some decades ago, and of course, things have have moved on and and changed uh, once again, but uh, it's an instance of the way in which people are often in a very serious forum, keep returning to the Middle Ages as uh, a model for thinking about how we might be living or how we might live. So you have that on the one hand. On the other hand, you have much more uh, at a more grassroots level, I guess, via something like the, the uh, Society for Creative Anachronism you have this possibility that the individual or small groups of individuals or families can respond to the modern world by being medieval, Mm -hmm. by taking on the medieval persona.
1: There's so much more that you address in the book, uh, literature and culture, and really helpfully contextualizing and demonstrating intention and motivation behind what have been variously called medieval revivals or uh, instances of medieval in storytelling. You mentioned Game of Thrones. You, you talk a lot about film in the book. You talk a lot about literature and, and the relation of medievalism to the canon. You talk about Defoe and Charlotte Bronte and Wilkie Collins and Dickens and Gaskell and Hardy. And it's just a really powerful book, I think, that you've written on how we can understand what we're doing when we get medieval. So thanks so much for taking the time to come and talk about it with us. Uh, do you want to say anything more about what you're doing now on, uh, on the idea maybe of civic medievalism? or is there something else that you're working on that you haven't had a chance to mention yet
0: well i'm i'm doing a couple of things i did mention mm-hmm. the extension of work on civic medievalism i'm i'm very interested in this uh what i'm thinking of is industrial medievalism mm-hmm. uh it's yeah. been uh, very much neglected even in architectural histories i mean as you've uh, as you know and uh, As is probably clear from what I've said, I come out of a literary studies uh, background, but medievalism forces you into multidisciplinarity. So I'm I'm now looking at um, these architectural instances and and thinking about why in the 19th century people thought it was a good idea to start building their railway tunnels or water pumping stations Hmm. uh, or or, uh, dams on reservoirs in this gothic style, what, what kinds of things that might have meant to people. My um, main work at the moment is um, actually on the Tudor period and its use and reuse of medieval literature. Um, this is more a, a literary study, um, and uh, I've been interested for a long time in in what happens to... Middle English literature, that's my field, Uh, Middle English literature, the literature of the 12th, 13th, 14th, and 15th centuries. Um, What happens to it in the Tudor period, um, much of it disappears in the sense that the manuscripts that hold it are not much read. They're neglected. They lie dormant in libraries. Mm -hmm. But in fact, as has been becoming clear for um, some years, there was more of it around than we've uh, previously thought, um, and I'm, I'm interested in tracing the, the history in the Tudor period of Middle English literature. And that, that's probably what I'll be doing next. Mm. Beyond that, I might revisit the 1840s. I still want to uh, work away at what it was that uh, happened in that period to make mm. the Middle Ages so suddenly fresh and alive to so many people.
1: Mm. we'll keep our eyes out for all of those projects from you again we've, we're talking with David Matthews professor of medieval and medievalism studies at the University of Manchester about his book Medievalism a Critical History originally published by Bodell Brewer in 2015 just out in paperback David thanks so much for taking the time to, to talk with us about the book and to uh, to share your thinking and your research with us we really appreciate it
0: thank you Carl. it was a pleasure